Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. to the Savvy Entrepreneur, and we are broadcasting from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel, and I'm doing this because, well, I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself, and I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting practice over the years, and I've seen lots of mistakes. But more than that, I've started or helped start at least nine different businesses And I personally, despite seeing mistakes others have made, I made mistakes too. My passion is to share what I've learned, to find other experts and entrepreneurs that'll share their advice and insights as well. As always, I welcome your comments, your questions, your suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, you've got an issue or a challenge, I'll try to get you an answer. Or if you want to be a guest, just email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Joining me by phone is Michael Rosen. He is the Managing Director, Innovation and Research Park at a place called Rosalind Franklin University in Chicago. And his job includes being the Managing Director at something we're going to focus on, which is called Helix 51. It's an emerging healthcare incubator. Now, Michael has spent most of his career in the life science industry, including 20 years in senior management positions with Pfizer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Cyril Monsanto. Additionally, he spent 12 years as the president and CEO of various European and U.S. biotech and medical device companies. Also in his past career, he was senior vice president, new business development for the science and technology group at Forest City Enterprises, which is a real estate development company. And you may wonder, what does that have to do with healthcare? Well, it has a lot to do, in fact, because that company, through Michael Rosen's help, developed and built science parks, including Johns Hopkins University, the Science Park at MIT, and at Northwestern University. And Michael was successful in bringing numerous international life science companies into these parks. He is a well-traveled individual, and I'm sure we could probably spend an hour talking about his stories and travel because he has lived in Latin America, Japan, and Europe, and worked extensively in Canada and Asia. He has his BA in sociology and international relations from Beloit College, but from there, it seems like you couldn't keep Michael down. He has an MBA in international business from the University of Miami and graduate and postgraduate studies at Northwestern University, Sofia University in Tokyo, and the Adolfo Ibanez University School of Business in Santiago, Chile. Just a couple words first about Helix 51, which is a new incubator and emerging incubator. It's located at Rosalind Franklin University, and you'll hear more about just what that is from Michael in a minute. 
He says it's the only wet lab-based incubator in Lake County, Illinois, and the only life science incubator between downtown Chicago and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So with that introduction, Michael, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Well, thank you, Doris. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for the intro. Well, it's an amazing background. So there's a number of places we could start, but I think maybe the first place is really to start with kind of the place that spawned, if you will, uh, the birth of Helix 51, which is Rosalind Franklin University. So exactly what is Rosalind Franklin University? What's it do and where is it located? Great. So first of all, just one correction. You said initially Rosalind Franklin in Chicago, and actually we're located in North Chicago. Uh, I should have said Greater Chicago, which is, Greater Chicago, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. North Chicago, which is So North Chicago is a, a city in Lake County, just immediately south of the county seat, Waukegan. And North Chicago is just north, for those of you in the North Shore, just north of Lake Bluff and just immediately south of Waukegan. And it is a community that is strategically located because Illinois' bioscience community today consists of about 56,000 jobs throughout the state. And 33,000 of these jobs are actually in Lake County within maybe 10 to 15 minutes of Rosalind Franklin's campus. Chicago land area has six medical schools. Four of them are downtown. One, Loyola, is in the western suburbs. And the only medical school in the northern part of Chicagoland area is Rosalind Franklin. The university was named after a woman. The university changed its name, actually, approximately 2002, 2003, to be named after a woman who was the pivotal person in the identification of the structure of DNA. Later on, two gentlemen by the name of Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for that work, but all the seminal work that was done in the identification of the structure of DNA, which is the basis of biotechnology, was really through Rosalind Franklin's work. Unfortunately, Rosalind Franklin died very young. She died at age 38 of ovarian cancer, in part due to to exposing herself to the X-rays that were critical to her research into identification of the structure of DNA. And so a new president that came to Rosalind Franklin early in the new century decided to change the name of the university, which was previously Finch University, to Rosalind Franklin. And it's the only medical institution in the U.S. named after a woman, Mm -hmm. uh, and a woman that was critical to the development of, of the field of biotechnology. So within Rosalind Franklin, you have five schools. I won't go into detail, but they're all healthcare related. The Chicago Medical School, probably the best known, dates back to 1912 and originally was downtown Chicago. You also have the Scholl School of Podiatry. You all probably know Dr. Scholl's, the company. Dr. Scholl was pivotal in the field of chiropody and podiatry early in the beginnings of the 20th century and founded what was known as the Illinois College of Chiropody. And that today is the Scholl's College of Podiatry, which is part of the Rosalind Franklin University and campus. And probably 
one out of three podiatrists in the U.S. usually are graduating from Rosalind Franklin. So it's probably a leader in, in this field of, of medicine. The college wow. also has a, a college of pharmacy, as well as two other colleges dealing with healthcare professions. That is a great overview of Rosalind Franklin. To help me understand, though, there's lots of medical schools out there, but not all of them have a Helix 51 or an incubator. What was the thinking behind that? Great question, Doris. So let's start with the name. The name Helix 51 was really a reference to the helical structure of DNA, which Rosalind Franklin identified. And that actually came from her famous published photo 51, which demonstrated that helical structure. And so we decided in creating the incubator in keeping with the the whole concept of Rosalind Franklin's work to name the incubator after her after her work in in the identification of the structure of DNA. That's really uh, a very cool story. Very yes, cool. Yes. And actually, uh, this year is a is a momentous year because it's the hundredth birthday of Rosalind Franklin. She was born a hundred years ago. Amazing. Centennial. Amazing. So, why an incubator at Rosalind Franklin? So again, a great question. About four years ago, one of the things that I noticed was that of Chicagoland's six medical schools, only one of the medical schools was actually situated in the heart of the of, of Illinois' bioscience industry. And I met with the leadership of the university at that time through the good graces of an individual by the name of Tom Dennison who started up an organization called the Smart Health Activator. And his goal was to generate new bioscience jobs in Lake County. And he had met with the folks at Rosalind Franklin and introduced me. And at that point, I asked Rosalind Franklin, um, were they interested in developing further relationships with the bioscience industry that was uh, actually in their backyard, number one? And number two is I was sure that they must have entrepreneurs within their faculty that were developing new technologies and spinning out companies. And the third element was there was no home for these early stage companies in Lake County or Southern Wisconsin. And so there was a real need. And I, I talked to them about the idea of a science park first. And they said, well, what's a science park? So <laughs> at that point, I had to give them an explanation that a science park is really a physical place where industry and academia collaborate in research with the goal of commercialization of academia's research to create products for mankind and the benefit of mankind. And so they got intrigued by that. I gave them then a tour of the different science parks in Chicago. And then I took them on a tour to see the science park uh, Georgia Tech called Tech Square, which which really blew them away. They when they saw this development at Georgia Tech, that it just kind of uh, it was transformative for at the city of Atlanta in terms of creating an area that was an urban slum and translating that into a vital part of the community and the university. And I said the key goal of uh, of a science park is really not only this commercialization process of university research and technologies, 
for the betterment of mankind, but also job creation, job training, uh, potential jobs for the students graduating from Rosalind Franklin, but also as a source of potential jobs for people in the community. Now, if you know anything about the community of North Chicago, unlike the immediate neighborhood community south of North Chicago, Lake Bluff, Lake, uh, Lake Forest, Highland Park, et cetera, Libertyville to the, to the west, North Chicago is a relatively poor community, high level of unemployment, low level of education, low level of income. And it is a community like Waukegan as well that could benefit from job creation, job training. And Rosalind Franklin also felt that it had a role as a citizen of North Chicago and of Lake County to participate in this activity. So when I explained all of this, uh, clearly this concept was met with an approval of the president of the university and the executive vice president of research that then wanted to explore this. They formed a task force to look at this further. And incredibly, four years later from, from when I first met with them, the science park was completed. Now that for a university is light speed. Most universities move very slowly, but Rosalind Franklin's leadership, quite frankly, saw the benefit for the community, for the university, and we were able to create and build this new science park from an idea to a physical place in four years. And That is remarkable, Michael. That's just, that's astounding. I mean, and the building, I've been there. There are laboratories and it is a brand new building complex that is just will blow your socks away. So it's it's an amazing, astounding accomplishment. Um, so I have to ask for our listeners, I'm not sure everybody knows what a wet lab is and whether why does that matter? Great. So a typical wet lab is the area where scientists do biology and chemistry. The the wet lab actually includes biology and chemistry Dry labs are similar, but basically used for the development of medical devices. What is critical in a wet lab environment is they have access to specialized air, to specialized gases if necessary, and other key ingredients for scientific research. Now, the issue with a wet lab is that a wet lab-based building costs anywhere from three to five and as much as eight times as expensive as, as a typical office building. And this, this new building is 100,000 square feet, so it's quite a large building. So it's, it is not a small investment, but it's critical for to create a specific scientific environment for these experiments. What kind of companies are you looking for to occupy the, the space? So the marvelous part of this, Doris, was that the leadership of the university when we were going forward to explore what the building was going to be looking like and how it was going to be set up and financed, the university totally redesigned its research element. So the university today had about 125 scientists in traditional departments such as chemistry, biology, microbiology, et cetera. And Ron Kaplan, the executive vice president of research, totally redesigned the structure of the university's research into disease-based centers. 
So we did an analysis and we saw that of the 120 plus scientists there, about 50% of them were doing brain-related research into brain diseases. And so Dr. Kaplan created the Rosalind Franklin Brain Science Institute. And so he reorganized half of the research in, under this new Brain Science Institute. We then discovered there were three other areas of excellence, centers of research excellence. One was in the area of genetic diseases. So a new center for genetic diseases was sent up and there are about 10,000 genetic diseases that impact more than 500 million people around the globe today for which there are no available medicines today to treat at least 95% of these diseases. He then set up another center for cancer immunology and infection. And then the last center he set up was the Center for Proteomics or the study of proteins, which focused on biomarkers. And biomarkers are critical today for the development of new diagnostics to predict early, as early as possible diseases. Because if you can predict these diseases early on, there's a better chance for treating these diseases. So, all right. So connecting the dots, I'm guessing that the thinking was, and you tell me if I'm I'm right about this, that the thinking was that by reorganizing the departments and the researchers into disease-based groups, centers, yes. centers as if that the idea was is that they would generate more commercially viable technologies that would then be part of the Helix 51 incubator? It's a great, a great point. So the goal was, first of all, by creation of the disease-based centers, it certainly made it a lot clearer to people in our community, alumni, industry, potential donors to the university, what the university's research was focused on, number one. Number two is you then create a, a specific area of expertise and excellence for industry to collaborate with in very specific disease areas. And the goal there was to figure out how to accelerate the commercialization of the university's technologies. You know, that that leads to an interesting question. So I'm sure there are lots of medical schools in this country, and and not just medical schools, but obviously chemistry departments and oncology research departments and things like that. So what typically happens to all those great ideas that are developed on these various campuses? I mean, do they have incubators to go to or is there a shortage of these incubators? So the answer is there are many incubators around the country. In fact, in Lake County, you probably have 10 incubators. This is the only bioscience incubator that has wet labs. And in fact, between here and Milwaukee, it is the only bioscience incubator. And between here and downtown Chicago, although Chicago has today three different bioscience incubators, which are fine for the downtown Chicago environment. And so although there there is one science park in Skokie that I actually was heavily involved with for 10 years in development, but a science park and an incubator are not the same thing. So an incubator is for the earliest of companies, companies that are very fragile. So think think of the concept of an incubator in a hospital for premature babies. 
And these bees are usually born several weeks in advance of their due date, and they're very fragile. And they're cared for in very special environments that basically enable them to go from fragility into viable infants. Well, it's the same way with early stage companies. Normally, it could be a faculty member that has an idea, but has no idea of a business and how to commercialize technology. He has a great grasp of a science in a particular area, has a great idea for a technology that could benefit patients, but he has no understanding of how to get that to the marketplace. So our goal is to provide him with the tools in the incubator, not just the space, but the tools and the assistance in how to commercialize, how to raise funds for that company and how to nurture that company into a viable company that can stand on its own two feet. All right. So I got to ask you to elaborate on that a little bit. I could see where sharing wet lab space could be useful because you've already explained it's quite expensive to build wet lab space. So, and I'm sure having people rub elbows close to each other also has some very productive benefits in its in and of itself. And you also, I think, elaborated to things like negative air pressure and access to gases. Talk a little bit more about some of the advantages of being part of an incubator and particularly the Helix 51 incubator. What what kind of physical shared services are available? And then I think you're kind of alluding at the end of your last point about some of the more skill set related support that's available. Great question. So First and foremost, we figured as the, the first building of the science park was in construction, we could not wait to assist the new companies spinning out of Rosalind Franklin, as well as new companies in the region that had no place to work from, no wet available wet lab space. So we took some existing space and existing building and converted it into what I would call phase one of the uh, Helix 51 incubator. So this was an area just under 6,000 square feet that was created to house anywhere from six to eight companies. And realizing that these companies were very fragile, they have very little money. They're usually living off of angel or friends and family money. They may be living off of what we call small business innovation research grants, SBIR grants. And so we had to make it affordable. We had to make it flexible. We couldn't do long lease terms. A typical lease or or what we call a license in this space is six months that is renewable because most of these companies are not generating revenue at this point. They're still trying to understand how they commercialize their products. We had to create scientific equipment that was available because they don't have the funds to purchase a lot of scientific equipment. So things such as minus 80 freezers, lab refrigerators, autoclaves and and special glass washing equipment for all their test tubes, and access to much more expensive scientific equipment. So the university has today research cores. A research core is a grouping of specialized equipment that may cost anywhere from $1 million to $5 or $10 million that the university uses to advance different aspects of of its research. And the university made these available on a fee-for-service basis to all of the startups without any reaching 
to the intellectual property that the companies were beginning to generate. And so these are services that range from a very specialized equipment. I, I don't want to bore you with technical names, but things like mass spectrometry, uh, things like uh, X-ray crystallography, things like nuclear magnetic resonance, which are all critical for identifying structures of, of new drugs and, and even diagnostics. And uh, Michael, I have to unfortunately ask you to hold your thought for just a second. We need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from a few of our sponsors. We'll be right back. You're listening to Doris Nagel and the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We've been chatting with Michael Rosen, our guest this week, to share the story of how he's helping build a new healthcare startup incubator in the northern suburbs of Chicago at Rosalind Franklin University called Helix 51. Michael, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the shared services and some of the many benefits that are available to companies who are interested in spreading their wings at the Helix 51 incubator. And I think before the break, you were talking about some of the kinds of physical advantages, the wet labs, the expensive equipment, some of the facilities. But we didn't get a chance to talk about some of the other kinds of benefits, some of the, the that are harder to quantify, but I'm sure are equally valuable. Yes. So the first stage in a bioscience incubator is providing the scientists with the key tools that they need to advance the products or technologies that they're developing to actually become real products that can be at least in some stage of commercialization. Often, though, many of these companies are run by scientists that have no business skills <laughs> and have no idea who their customer is. Is your customer a patient? Is it a company? Is it a doctor? Is it a pharmacy? And so we have to sit with them to help basically give them the business skills that will complement their technical skills. Now, the first program that we started actually was with SCORE. SCORE is a national organization of retired executives, successful executives that is affiliated with the SBA. And we implemented our first program actually with SCORE starting in January, which was focused on a business plan. And so we, we felt that it was critical that all of these companies get help and assistance in development of a business plan because any investor down the road or any potential partner or even a bank, if they're trying to get a loan, is going to ask for a business plan. And so right. we thought that was the first of the building blocks. And we're actually working with the SCORE group on a monthly basis to uh, provide assistance in the development of viable business plans. A second program that we hope to be doing with SCORE shortly is what we call pitching. And pitching is everything from a formal pitch to an investor where you have a investor deck PowerPoint presentation that might run anywhere from 10 minutes to a half an hour to what we call the elevator pitch, which is, you know, literally you're in an elevator and you've got 90 seconds or two minutes to basically make to the right person or find out if this is the right person, the pitch of what your company is about and what you're looking for. So these are, are kind of critical skills because all of these companies at some point are going to be either seeking investor money, partner money, or bank loans. 
Because of the long development cycle of pharmaceutical, medical device, and diagnostic products. You know, the other thing that occurs to me that I've seen with a lot of, uh, I'm familiar with a lot of physician startups and a ton of great ideas out there, but just because it's a cool idea or something that one doc thinks is a great idea, uh, the other critical piece, I think, has got to be market research, because before you invest in something, even if you pitch it well, if there's not a market for it, it <laughs> may not be worth pursuing. So, Doris, you're dead on. So, actually, the National Science Foundation has a program that takes scientists, scientists that are admitted into the program, the first thing that they have to do, whether it's a doctor or a scientist, is they have to go out and meet with 100 potential customers with the goal of identifying what the customer is looking for, if this is the right customer, who is the customer, Mm -hmm. and what what their needs are, and how that will modify and change their program. And the University of Chicago is leading that uh, this National Science Foundation effort within the Chicagoland area, and they have been helping us with this program and the implementation of it at, at Rosalind Franklin. Oh, that's, I'm glad to hear that. Because sometimes, as you've alluded to, finding the right customer is a little trickier than it sounds. And, you know, I'm thinking of one company I worked with, which is a telehealth company. And they thought the customer was actually the practitioner, the physician practitioner. But it turns out that particularly if you're selling to larger healthcare systems, one of the biggest customers is the IT departments of those people. Yes. <laughs> they, they made no plans for that. And as right. a result, ran into a lot of, a lot of roadblocks and a, a lot of unnecessary, probably frustration and delays. And, uh, and meanwhile, you know, they're burning cash. So yes. uh, it's really important. Yes, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. My colleague, Steve Coomerly, and I, who worked hand and foot as a longtime ex-Abbott, initially bench scientist, turned business developer, turned venture capitalist. And he and I worked hand in glove for the development of industry relationships with Rosalind Franklin, but also the development of both the Science Park and the Incubator. So together, we're structuring these programs that we'll be rolling out later this year, which include internship programs, both internships from students within Roslyn Franklin, as well as students coming from North Chicago and Lake County that can potentially assist the companies, whether in a lab-based function or whether in a business-based function. The other program that we're looking to roll out this year is what we call an entrepreneur in residence where we take seasoned veterans that basically on a monthly basis have office hours and provide their time to the companies in key areas such as raising money, partnering with larger companies, regulatory issues with the FDA, product scale-up issues, manufacturing, et cetera, and a whole array of fields that are critical for these companies. And they don't have, the, the companies themselves don't have the funding yet to be able to access this kind of talent. So this entrepreneur in residence program will hopefully also be able to assist them with necessary input from seasoned veterans in the bioscience industry. Wow, that's fantastic. So, all right, I'm a company and I am sold. I think this sounds like a great opportunity. 
how do I know if I'm a good match for you at Helix 51? Or maybe flipping it around, what kind of company specifically are you looking to fill Helix 51 with? That's a wonderful question. So, so we actually meet with the companies, Steve, Kumarly, and myself, and I meet with the companies to try to understand first the science. What kind of science are they doing? What area of medicine? Where are they going to need help going forward? And try to understand the stage of development. Do they have intellectual property, which is critical, even if it's not approved yet, but if at least if they've applied for new patents, which is important for a, uh, a bioscience startup. And we do kind of a really kind of getting to know you thing to see if there is a match. Now, first of all, it's got to be a company in the bioscience space. But bioscience space could be anything from diagnostics to medical devices, to drugs, to what we call digital healthcare, to pharmacy services. All of these are areas of interest to us. And then we try to identify linkages to key research faculty at Rosalind Franklin that will help enable potentially their research and create collaborations with Rosalind Franklin. It's been proven that if you can establish a company in a science park and particularly in an incubator where there are direct linkages to what's going on in the university research setting, that those companies will stay and continue to grow there as they grow through several stages of, of development. That's it. very interesting. So what does it cost for a company to be part of Helix 51? And I guess this is maybe kind of talking a little bit about some of the distinctions between an incubator and an accelerator or other names that are out there. But is this a monthly fee that a startup company would pay? Do you take shares in the company? What? How does that work exactly? We don't take equity. Um, some incubator. So let me first, uh, to answer your question, differentiate between an incubator and an accelerator. An incubator usually takes the most fragile, earliest stages of companies to help them get up and going. An accelerator usually is a prescribed program that may run anywhere from a number of weeks to nine months or 12 months, where they put them through like what I would call a boot camp. So it's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that we are very physically close to is the Great Lakes Naval Station is right next to the Rosalind Franklin campus. Immediately north of us, we've got what is called the Lovell Federal Healthcare Center, which is the only combination of a naval hospital and a VA hospital in the United States. And two different distinct patient populations. So Great Lakes Naval Base graduates probably 35 to 40,000 new recruits every year in Navy boot camp. It's the principal Navy boot camp in the United States. We went to see the Navy boot camp and we saw the program they had to go through. And I would say an accelerator basically puts you through that kind of what I would call a startup boot camp to prepare you. And those that graduate from the accelerator program hopefully will go on to some stage of success. But we, we felt that before one could set up an accelerator program, that really we needed to start with the first stage, which was an incubator, at least get the earliest of companies in and give them the necessary tools to get going. Now, whether we may do an accelerator later on, still to be determined, but we, we, we felt we needed to walk before we could run. 
So if I'm a company, though, and I'm a good match, do I pay a monthly fee to Helix 51 or to the university for yes. my access to that? Is that how yep. it works? Yep, you do. So we typically do no more than a six-month license or lease for space. And we, we didn't make it any longer than that because these companies are very fragile financially as well as, 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 well as from product development perspective. Our goal would be that the end of two years, we'll obviously be looking at how the companies progress and uh, how do we mark progression. Well, if they start adding on employees, that's one area of progression. If they've won SBIR grants, if they've applied for new patents, if they've had scientific publications in major peer-reviewed scientific journals, all these are what I would call lead indicators of a company's progression, as well as investor money. So typically, our goal is, is that a company at a two-year mark in the incubator, if they haven't shown any signs of these uh, indicators of progression, then we'll probably have to sit down with the company and say, listen, we don't think your company is moving forward in this way. And we think you really need to shift your business model or rethink what your business is about. And we would potentially give them up to another year in the incubator. Our, our feeling is that more than three years in an incubator, if a company's not ready to grow beyond an incubator, they're probably not going to grow. There's something wrong intrinsically with the company's business model. Basically, the university has made this very cost effective and it's a certain degree subsidized to allow early stages companies to get going. We charge one fee for basically everything. There's no add-on fees, which gives them not only access to their particular space, but also the shared scientific equipment, conference rooms, access to the research library, access to our university cafe and catering. So we try to make it as affordable as and flexible as possible for these earliest of stage of companies. I think I read in something that you sent me that I was looking over before our chat that there are now, what, five companies that are part of Helix 51? Talk talk a little bit about how they came to Helix 51 and, you know, share what you can about who those companies are and to how they got there. I think the companies that are there are all a kind of a reflection of the different types of bioscience activities going on in Lake County. So the first company that came in the incubator was actually a spin out of Rosalind Franklin. It, it started with a research collaboration that started a number of years between Baxter International and Rosalind Franklin in the area of a disease area called fibrosis or fibrotic diseases. The director of research at Baxter at that point came to be, uh, Rosalind Franklin became an adjunct professor and stayed on and began to do his research at Rosalind Franklin and set up a company. And so that company spun out and they're currently focused on the development of a new drug for cancer, as well as a new drug for these fibrotic diseases, which affect other organs such as kidney, liver, and lung. The university actually owns the, the technology and the company licenses the technology from the university. 
just wanted to clarify for listeners, when you say spun out, you don't mean they did a spinoff or an IPO or anything like that. You're meaning that they moved really from university-funded research into taking the next step of saying, okay, we're going to take this technology, we're going to form a company, and we're going to actually see if we can't commercialize it, right? Exactly. And in fact, the company has been very successful in obtaining SBIR grants, Small Business Innovation Research from the NIH. Thank you for that, that clarity. Another company that came in is a company that consisted of a former scientist of Abbott. As you know, Abbott Park is maybe five minutes away from the university. So a former Abbott scientist had an idea to detect allergens in hospitals, homes, offices, clinics, and together with the former Searle, G.D. Searle executive set up this company and they are moving this forward very aggressively in the incubator. They came in with basically three employees and they've added on already in less than a year, another three or four employees. So they're growing very nicely. Right. Those Uh, are the kind of companies you love to hear about. Yes. Yes. Still another company uh, actually was created by a PhD candidate that did his postdoctoral studies at Rosalind Franklin in the area of fertility and set up a company around fertility issues. And then the two other companies that have landed there recently, one is, again, coming from a major pharmaceutical company and had an idea, a service-based company for the biomedical industry, and has set that company. And then another is another service-based company that has analytical services that are critical for drug development, uh, as also set up there. It's great to see that companies are taking advantage of this wonderful resource. Stepping back, it's been an amazing journey, it sounds like, for the past four years. But looking back, talk a little bit about what you've learned so far and how the program has evolved and changed based on what you've been learning. So what we're talking about here is the concept of innovation in university research and the culture of innovation. So one of the things I learned when I was creating a science park at Johns Hopkins with Northwestern, with MIT, is that universities and industry speak two different languages. (laughs) That's for sure. And I think Steve Coomerly and I are basically our main activity is as translators, interpreters. Having both of us worked in academia as well as industry, we are basically the translators between these two different languages. The other element is maybe 10 to 15 years ago, many universities did not want to collaborate with industry because the feeling was that it was unethical, that it was getting their hands dirty. (laughs) But I think what changed that in the late, 80s was the Bay-Dole Act, which basically allowed for the creation of technologies coming out and, and funded by the government through the NIH, et cetera, to allow universities to set up companies to collaborate with industry. And that's kind of radically changed the landscape. Nevertheless, many universities have this feeling that 
working with industry is is not something that they're looking to do, but they realize that if they're really going to take technologies that are invented at a university to benefit mankind, then they really need an industry partner to help that. And so that concept was what drove the initiation of the science park at Johns Hopkins when Ron Kaplan, the executive vice president of research, realized, wow, they were doing great research. They were getting very nice NIH funding for research, but none of their products were getting to the marketplace. And so he created first a technology transfer, technology commercialization office for patenting technology. But then the next step was the creation of the science park and then the incubator. And I think that concept of innovation in research of what we call translational research, research that can benefit mankind is what's what's driving the development of the science park. And not only Rosalind Franklin University, but many universities, Northwestern, University of Chicago, University of Illinois, to enhance their activities in collaboration with industry. Hmm. So I have to ask you, and this is just a ballpark guess, and I don't think anybody's going to hold you to this, but it leads me to, to think about all the research that's happening at universities. What percentage of, of research that might result in something commercially viable actually doesn't ever make the light of day? So great question. I'm going to give you two different statistics. On average, in the United States, about 13% of all technologies invented at the university are licensed and commercialized to some degree. Now, how much they are commercializing get to the marketplace, I can't tell you. That means that 80% of the technologies that the university has patented or developed are sitting on a shelf for a number of reasons. However, I'm going to say on the flip side today, the pharmaceutical and biotech industry today license about 75 to 80% of their new products are coming from universities or small companies that have spun out of universities that have been created off of university technology. So the pharmaceutical industry and biotech industry know that really where the innovation in new medicine is and new diagnostics and new medical devices is at research-based universities. And so you see the phenomena in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where you have more biotech companies per square foot than any place in the world. And everybody is rushed to be next to MIT and Harvard and Boston University because of the access to great science. That phenomena has also happened in San Francisco in two areas, University of California, San Francisco and Mission Bay, and also around Stanford. You also see that concept in San Diego around the La Jolla area and University of California, San, San Diego. We have not seen that happen as much in Chicago at this point, but I think it's a trend that is coming. And you see now in Chicago, the development of more lab space downtown Chicago, as well as in the suburbs to accommodate all this university-based research. If you look at the NIH funding, National Institutes of Health funding, going to Chicago universities, we ranked pretty high, probably in the top five or six clusters in the United States of NIH funding. So we're getting good research money from the government currently. And so that is what's going to drive companies to want to collaborate with research-based universities. And that was the idea behind the creation of the science park, 
to create a specific space in Lake County to collaborate with Rosalind Franklin Research, specifically in the area where all Chicagoland's bioscience industry is located. Amazing sort of confluence. Well, Michael, we're, we're really out of time. I knew the hour would fly by really quickly. And it's just been a delight to learn more about Rosalind Franklin University and the emerging healthcare incubator, Helix 51, and all the exciting things going on. I can't wait to see what happens next, frankly. So thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you. I think if we are successful in our endeavor beyond this first building that we've just launched, there will be a second and third building on the Rosalind Franklin campus to expand the interactivity with industry. We're at phase one now. Hopefully there will be a phase two and phase three and create this real cluster here in Lake County. Hopefully so. It sounds like we're going to have to keep a close eye and maybe invite you to come back to talk about the next steps as the story unfolds. I look forward to it, Doris. Again, thank you. And thanks so much to all of our listeners. To listen to an on-demand recording podcast of today's show, along with other free information and resources for entrepreneurs, you can go to the Savvy Entrepreneur show page at lakesradio.org or to my law and consulting website, which is www.globalocityservicesplural.com. Be sure to join us next Saturday when our guest will be John Casey. He's the president of Shamrock Consultants, and our topic will be one of interest to most business people, and that is the topic of leadership. It's a word we use a lot, but I'm not convinced that we're always really clear about what leadership means and what it doesn't mean. And his company has a process for not only evaluating leadership, but also for helping company leaders get better at the business of leading and inspiring trust. It'll be an interesting and worthwhile interview, I promise. So be sure not to miss it. And until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring. <laughs>